Hello and welcome to the Archimedes Podcast, the evidence-based section of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood, where what we do is bring you the best clinical questions answered using the best available evidence, all directed around patient-reported outcomes. But first, let's start with something that is a little bit in the news, a little bit worrying, a little bit maybe challenging to the whole idea of the practice of medicine and evidence-based medicine in particular. After all, the end of our profession is nigh. Chatbots and artificial intelligence and how. I'm sort of hoping that there are either some very old people or some pre-millennial film buffs listening to this podcast. They will take over the world. Doctors are needed no more. The news at the moment is mainly full of things about diagnostic flow bots where they work through a protocol or a pathway to come up with a most likely diagnosis. But it's not just there that we have computers taking over. In the world of the generation of evidence for the practice of evidence-based medicine, there are automations which can improve things. With better tagging and electronic indexing, we will soon be able to discover all the clinical trials that have ever been done in an area with registration of trials before that they open. This is something that can be done, if that's done effectively with the correct tagging, that can be done really easily. And there's a, an example of this at a place called opentrials.net, run by the groups in Oxford. We are also making strides in text mining in publications, which is where you set a computer at titles and abstracts and things, so that if you're doing a systematic review, it can screen out those papers that are likely to be included and those that are almost certainly not included. And so saving an awful lot of really quite boring human time doing those work. And then there's the whole advent of living systematic reviews, which is a thing that Cochrane has been promoting. The idea that a systematic review should be constantly being updated with every new study that's relevant. And if that was the case, then the whole Archimedes section would in some extent become obsolete. Even with all this automation and advancement and the push notification of new things that you're interested in and following hashtags, there will still remain a simple truth, which as a child health specialist, we know every moment of our clinical lives. Medicine is so much more than the medicines or the surgery or the radiotherapy. The practice of medicine is the connection with the patient and the family and knowing when to wear the funny nose or tickle the teddy bear and when to be serious, when all the evidence in the world is still the wrong thing to do for these people. It's why when we talk about evidence-based practice, we push the triad. It's the intersection of the patient and family preferences, the high quality science and good clinical skills. Archimedes, with all of our pulling together evidence and appraisal and thinking about the context, it can help, but it cannot be followed to practice medicine properly. Our two questions this week are both a little bit chalky in origin. Rhoda Greaves, Andrew Thompson and Thomas Bourke from Belfast in Northern Ireland have come up with a question about alpha antagonists and the promotion of passage of renal stones in children. The scenario is, for me, a little unusual, but a 10-year-old boy presenting with a one-week history of crampy abdominal pain, haematuria, flank tenderness and imaging reveals what looks like a renal stone. On CT scan, it measures at about 3mm in size, 
And when you're all chatting about it at the handover meeting, it was suggested that alpha antagonists could be used in this setting. You're a little surprised by this, but intrigued to find out the evidence, go and see if it's used in children. And so you ask the structured clinical question, in children with renal stones, that's the population, does treatment with alpha blockers, the intervention, compared with conservative medical treatment and analgesia alone, that's the standard of care comparison, increase the expulsion rate of stones, and that's the outcome. The team went away and looked at PubMed using a variety of terms for children and for renal stones and for different sorts of alpha antagonists. The non-paediatric studies and those that looked at shock wave lithotripsy, which I think is the use of fancy ultrasound to blast the stones, were excluded. And then that got down to about 17 papers that were looked at in full detail. Nine of those were relevant and four of those were systematic reviews. Within that, they found that five of the other studies that they found were already in the different systematic reviews. Looking at these systematic reviews, they came up with slightly different things. Surprisingly, given that they are mainly working with the same subject matter, people included or excluded different types of studies, ranging from one that included just the prospective and cohort studies, one looking at the randomised controlled trials, one bringing everything together, and somewhere between 140-odd and 500 and so patients were brought together in these. When you look at the systematic review that only looks at the randomised controlled trials, then they are going to be the ones that are probably the least biased. That estimates that the probability of expulsion of the stone was increased by around about 27%, which is reasonable, particularly when that's an absolute figure. So if you think about that, that's for every four patients you treat, one of them will expel a stone that wouldn't have done if you hadn't have done it before. They used different sorts of alpha blockers, doxazazine or tamnosulfan, and usually alongside brufen as a pain relief. None of these studies were big, the largest one only 61 in the RCT. They also comment that you're only looking at smallish stones, so we're not talking about the use of alpha blockers to try to expel something that is two and a half metres wide. The cohort studies came back with similar sorts of ideas showing the expulsion rates were higher in those that had used alpha blockers than others. But if anything, the gaps were a little bit smaller, not the one in four type level. Maybe a little bit a little bit smaller than that. And and that is reassuring in that mostly things that are based around non-randomized evidence tend to exaggerate a response rather than come back with a slightly smaller number. And so you can sort of believe that the figure is somewhere around that. Mostly these medications are used between three and six weeks or so. And looking at the information in the studies that is there, what we see is that the passage of stone is usually around a week or so. And so what we could probably do is say, try for three, four weeks or so. If the patients have passed their stones, if there are no further treatments, then you could bring that back and not do it again. In conclusion, what this shows is that the Children with renal stones do appear to have an improved rate of expulsion when they're given alpha antagonists. And despite the small numbers involved, there were no really obvious side effects for using these in kids. If you extrapolate a little bit down from their widespread use in adult practice, then these sorts of side effects we expect to see are generally mild and resolve on their own when the medication is stopped. 
The next of our clinical questions also has a chalky feel, in that Chike Onwamene and Eleanor Malloy from Dublin in Ireland are asking the question, vitamin D intake for preterm infants, how much do they really need? Now I find the whole thing about vitamin D intake a little bit confusing at times, and the scenario that we've got here is one that would definitely confuse me. There was a preterm baby girl born at 25 weeks gestation, now developed and evaluated for discharge home. The junior doctor there was asked to prescribe vitamins and iron, but questioning the local guidelines, found that there was no international consensus on the amount of vitamin D supplementation required for preterm infants on discharge to carry on. So the question was asked, how much vitamin D given to preterm infants would maintain vitamin D adequacy? Now that in itself is a bit of a question, isn't it? Because what is enough vitamin D? What they've used here is greater than 50 nanomoles per litre. And if you use the other units, that's greater than 20 nanograms per milliliter. So depending on which one it is that you tend to use, it's either the 50 or the 20. What they were looking for was across a whole load of things in Medline to come back to see if there was any idea that you can get vitamin D and supplementation and what is enough. They also looked um, in the Cochrane Library as well. What they found was that there were six vitamin D trials in preterm infants, randomised trials that have tried to answer this question. There were a couple of trials that looked at either 400 international units or 1,000 international units of vitamin D3 in preterm infants given over a six-week period in India, and they showed that the 1,000 international units per day was better than the smaller dose. But... What they also discovered was that there were toxic levels in about 10% of infants. That's just pretty high. Another group used a 400 versus 800 comparison, showing that 800 did get better levels of vitamin D, did reduce the amount of vitamin D supplementation, but again, did lead to some levels of toxicity. Other groups have demonstrated that vitamin D intakes down at the sort of the level of 150, 160 or so, still did have enough if the infants were fed with other supplements as well. And there were other publications previously looking around the 200 to 400 level that came up with this sort of level. There are also a bunch of cohort studies where they've taken the infants and followed them forward to see what in a longer term was a good enough level to keep the vitamin D levels up. They were studies at around the 400 or 600 level, demonstrating that in preterm infants under the 32-week age, that they gave an adequate amount over the time. Now, this comes up with an interesting sort of level, doesn't it? Because if you give more, then more kids fall into the okay range, but you're risking putting a whole bunch of kids up into the more worrying level. Now, mostly what we can see is that lower doses around that sort of 200 to 4 level are adequate in order to get them uh, up and get them running. The other problem with it is that the higher levels, although they've been shown to change the blood markets, haven't really been shown to do anything clinically relevant more than the 200 to 400 international units a day dosing that gets decent levels in the vast majority of babies. And so their take-home conclusion is, despite the trial evidence demonstrating better sufficiency levels, when you pull in that toxicity in as well, then you're probably best to give a dose of somewhere between 200 to 400 international units a day 
and that should be enough in combination with infant's diet to prevent vitamin D inadequacy. Now, if you too want to submit an Archimedes to struggle through the evidence, to come up with a best-that-you-can interpretation of what it's telling you, feel free to do so. The instructions are there on the Archives Diseases of Childhood website, and we hope to get many more questions in of things that I've not really considered or run away from over years, and maybe some of you listeners have done too. So until next month, thank you very much for listening.